Luke chapter 17 is our sermon text for this morning. Page 1626, if you'd like to use the Pew Bible in front of you to follow along. Continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, accompanying our Lord on his journey to Jerusalem and retracing the steps that he took and hearing his words. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word given to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink." Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. This week I ran across a list of the top ten thankless jobs in our society today. A few examples from this list of 10 were farmers, garbage collectors, and window washers. There are many vocations perhaps we don't think of very often, but they have an enormous effect on our lives. Probably a lot of what we have in front of us when we sit down to eat has been grown or raised by someone somewhere. Our lives would be fairly miserable if we had no one to take our garbage away uh, to another place. And you can think of going into a place like a city and seeing how many thousands upon thousands of windows they are, and many of them are kept clean. The phrase thankless job and the fact that it's something that we hear from time to time shows that even in the realm of our work and our responsibilities, we, we feel that we should receive praise for doing our job well, but most of the time what happens is you fulfill your responsibilities, you're paid according to the agreement that has been made, and everyone goes on with their lives. Some may come to this passage and they read the words of Jesus and they say, Jesus kind of makes the life of a Christian, our spiritual lives, sound like a thankless job. Here he is telling us to do something that seems extremely difficult, perhaps impossible. Be ready to forgive someone over and over and over again, and then expect no recognition for it. 
But Jesus is not showing us that Christianity is like a thankless job. He's doing a couple of things. The first of which is this. He's showing us the danger of looking at our own work, that which we do, and thinking that it contributes to our standing and our acceptance before God. He's warning us of the danger of doing that. We come to this passage and see how he tells or commands his people who have been renewed, who have been following him, made to be part of his kingdom, what is the way in which they are to be forgiving towards others. But he's warning us about the danger of looking at that work of forgiveness that we do and thinking that it contributes to our standing before God. That's the first thing he's doing. Secondly, he is highlighting the work that has already been done for us in the gospel, that work which we can never equal on our own and by our own efforts. So it's a call to deny ourselves and to practice a true humility of spirit. No matter what we do, no matter how much we forgive, we will still never equal what has already been done for us. And so we must be wary of our tendency to look at our own work And to think that that is what God looks upon and accepts for us and establishes our standing when it is all of grace and it is all in Christ. Here's our central truth for this morning. The human heart is prone to wander back to the law to establish our acceptance before God. But the inevitable result of doing so is misusing the law, abusing grace, making much of our own achievements and judging others. Misusing the law, abusing grace, making much of our own achievements and judging others. Here's our life-transforming reality. We must guard our lives by being continually fed and shaped and fueled by the gospel of grace. In so doing, we become a forgiving and grace-filled community of unworthy servants who know our own flaws and our own sin before pointing them out in others. We need to be continually fed, shaped, fueled by the gospel. And by so doing, we will become a forgiving and grace-filled community of unworthy servants who know our own flaws and our own sin before pointing them out in others. Three basic themes, the gospel, the law, and forgiveness. We see that false gospels are inevitable. They will come. False gospels are inevitable. Secondly, we see a proper use and a proper understanding of the law is essential. And third, we see the power to forgive is spiritual, by which I mean it comes from the Holy Spirit. The power to forgive is spiritual. So first, false gospels are inevitable. This scene is it's not a change in scenery. They're still unfolding this discussion of Jesus between himself and his disciples, even his apostles, his followers, the crowds, and the Pharisees. And Jesus has been looking straight into the eye and the system of the Pharisees. He's been challenging it for a good long while now. Think of Luke chapter 16, or sorry, Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells various parables about the gospel of grace and the lavish forgiveness that is poured out from heaven in the name of Christ and by the grace of God. Then Luke chapter 16 where Jesus looks into the system of the Pharisees. He says, your system to look at earthly resources and using that to establish your standing before God, that is wrong. What you instead need to do is understand that you need to use your earthly resources to advance the kingdom of God. You need to relegate it underneath 
the kingdom of God and use it for God and for his glory. So when Jesus says what he does in our first verse today, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, we may think that that he's changing to a whole different discourse, but actually this is still connected to all that has come before, and understanding it that way is very important. Of course, it's wrong in a general sense to cause people to sin in any way, to be the reason why someone might fall into sin. That's a very bad thing. But what Jesus is speaking specifically about here when he's talking about the word here that we translate things that cause people to sin, pretty clunky translation, it's really the word for stumbling block. When Jesus is speaking about stumbling blocks here, what he's talking about is stumbling blocks that strike at the heart of a right understanding of the gospel, of a right understanding of the gospel of grace. Those who would cloud what God has declared about how we are redeemed about how he regards us as forgiven and given eternal life. In terms of clouding the message of salvation, this is exactly what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees cloud the message of salvation. They make a scandal of grace. They place stumbling blocks in front of people, which prevents them from understanding the mercy and the grace of God. How do the Pharisees do this? Well, we've seen They make make acceptance before God a matter of obedience to the law and even a matter of money. A Pharisee would say, do you obey the law in the way that we specify? Do you follow all of our regulations in terms of external obedience? That is how you know God is pleased with you. Do you use your money to prove your worth and your righteousness? Then you will be fine. We've seen over the past couple of weeks, over the past few weeks, the Pharisees, they did not live lavish lifestyles, but a lot of them had means, they had money, and they would use their money, giving alms and making sure that everyone knew and everyone saw what they were doing in order to establish their righteousness. This is how the Pharisees clouded a right understanding of the gospel. Jesus says this is a grievous error, and he condemns it quite strongly, doesn't he? Woe to the person who does this. He says it would be better for them to die a horrible and a gruesome death. Not a pleasant picture, right? A millstone is a huge grinding stone. Place that around someone's neck, throw them into the heart of the sea. They have no chance of escape. Jesus says it would be better if that were to happen to that person than if they were to cloud the understanding of salvation that is found in the word of God. Jesus is concerned here of guarding what he calls little ones. Is he speaking just of children? Well, he, certainly that probably figures into it, right? Children are impressionable. Children will often believe what they are told. They will follow the ways that are laid before them. That reminds us of the importance of teaching our children, of catechizing them, of filling their minds with scriptural truths and pointing them to the truth of God. But what Jesus means more precisely here is children in the faith. Those who have just come to a proper understanding of the message of grace. Those who have just heard about what Jesus has taught. About how are we made partakers of the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that you enter through faith and repentance. It's a kingdom that you enter through seeing your own insufficiency and your own need for a savior. This was one of the problems that riddled the early church. Apostles, like Paul, would go throughout the world. 
They would preach the gospel. They would establish churches. People would bow the knee to Jesus Christ and trust in him alone for salvation. And then afterwards, their people would come in. They were known as the Judaizers, and they would say, now that message of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that message needs a little bit of adjustment. You need to submit to certain parts of the Old Testament law. You need to to do certain things and check the box to make sure that you're okay with God. And you can imagine these children in the faith who have just come to this new understanding of salvation. I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by all that Christ does. They're going to be impressionable and they're going to probably follow what they are hearing. They're going to assume, well, I certainly don't know everything about this. There's certainly a lot that I still have yet to learn. And Paul, uh, for instance, and other apostles saw various problems arise in the early church because of this specific movement. And so what Jesus is saying and what Jesus reminds us of in this passage here today is the importance of understanding the gospel of grace, the fundamental truth that comes forth from the scriptures of how are sinful people set right with God. And we must cling to the message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, completely apart from human merits. This is the message that the church has been commissioned to proclaim. This highlights the importance of the church writing down what it believes. We think, for instance, of our own confessional standards that make this very clear. And they tell, how is a person set right with God? How is a person justified before God. We read in Article 22, for instance, of our Confession of Faith. It says that the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith, a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all of his merits and makes him its own. And here's the clincher. And no longer looks for anything apart from him. The heart no longer looks for anything apart from Christ for salvation. Then it says this, For it must necessarily follow that either all that is required for salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, to say that, well, you need faith in Christ, but you need something else, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God. For it would then follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior. And brothers and sisters, we know that Jesus Christ is not half a Savior. We think of the affirmation of faith we used this morning. What more do we need? For in Him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and salvation. He alone is our Savior. So Jesus is concerned about protecting these little ones. In the context of Luke, the little ones are the tax collectors and the sinners, those who have been astounded by these things that Jesus has been preaching. The parable of the prodigal son, the loving father who sees his son tattered and bruised and torn apart by his own sin, by his own wretchedness, and the loving father runs out to greet him and to meet him on the road. You think of Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. There in the middle of the painting, Rembrandt put a tax collector who is seeing this scene unfold. The loving father throwing his arms around his son whose head is shaved and whose clothes are torn. He's only wearing one of his shoes. And you can, you can see in the face 
of the tax collector is this amazement of what is transpiring, that the loving father sees his son who has spent a third of his estate, he's throwing his arms around him. And this reminds us that Jesus is so concerned, so concerned to protect the tender and vulnerable faith of these little ones. And it reminds us of the love of God to forgive sinners and to welcome them home, those who know that they need a Savior. Think, uh, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he says something to the effect of, a prostitute needs no convincing that she is in need of a Savior, but the Pharisees, the self-righteous, they are in need of that danger. And we're reminded in this passage that God is passionate about saving lost sinners, the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But challenges to the gospel have always arisen. They've been been present in every age. We see it present in our age. People saying, well, faith in Christ, yes, but there's more that you need. You need to add more to that gospel message. And so often what is needed to be added is human work, human efforts, that which we do. God may meet us halfway. We have to come halfway as well. And the reason that these things are inevitable, Jesus says that they will come. The reason that they are inevitable is that the human heart's default mode is to self-justify. The human heart's default mode is to say, God accepts me on the basis of what I do. It's been said that self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart. We are prone to think this way. God helps those who help themselves. I am what I am because I have earned it. This is even embedded in so many of the messages within our own culture. So these things are inevitable. And in the midst of that, Jesus says that a proper understanding of the law is essential. And that's our second main point this morning. A proper understanding of the law is essential. And this is what we see In verse 3, what Jesus says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He states it positively, but what he really unearths is two of the main errors of what happens when people come to the law in order to justify themselves before God. Two errors. The first is this. If you think that by the law you're going to achieve your standing before God, you are going to relax its demands and you're going to look for loopholes. You're going to relax its demands and you're going to look for loopholes. This is what the Pharisees did. We think of the example that Jesus used in Luke chapter 16 of marriage and divorce. And this entire, this entire system that they had constructed to go about marriage and divorce, they looked to the Old Testament. They said, well, Moses said that if you are going through a divorce, you just need to give a certificate. So you give a certificate. If that certificate is present in that situation, then there's almost no reason why you can't seek a divorce. So a man might say that he's displeased with how his wife has been cleaning the home, or he's found someone who is of greater interest to him. Two things that expose an astounding level of evil in someone's heart. Things that expose clearly sin in someone's heart. But they would say, well, the certificate of divorce is present. So they've obeyed. There's this external obedience in the situation. That's why Paul, who's looking and assessing the situation with the Israelites in Romans chapter 2, and he's making the case for why all human beings are sinful before God, he looks into that situation and he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Because you say, you boast in this external obedience to the law. Meanwhile, the sin that the law is exposing, you're you're blind to it. You don't even see it. So he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. In other words, let the law be the law. Let the law do its work in you. Woe to him who calls evil good and good evil. Let the law do what it was intended to do. It was intended to expose our sinfulness. It was intended to show our need for a savior. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Regard the law the way it ought to be regarded. Call sin, sin. Call evil, evil. Let it expose the weaknesses in you. Let it expose the weaknesses in your brother. And then follow through with what sin exposes. Galatians 6, brothers, if any one of you is caught in a sin, let those who are spiritual restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This was the Apostle Paul's vision for the church, that they would be a community of forgiving and grace-filled, unworthy servants who say, God is the one. God is the one who, who sets the rules. God is God and we are not. Whatever he says is right, that's right. Whatever he says is sin, that is sin. We're going to submit to that word and we're going to let it affect the way that we live. We're going to be passionate about preserving purity within our own community. And seeing sin in our brother or sister gives us the opportunity to address it before it becomes a bigger issue. But even in bigger issues, this highlights the importance of practicing church discipline and making sure that the church is concerned for its purity. That's the first error. Lesson is demands, look for loopholes. Error two is that it cuts you off from mercy. If you think that the law is the place where you go to establish your standing before God, it's going to cut you off from showing mercy. We return to Romans chapter two. The apostle Paul says that the law shuts up everyone under sin. It leaves people without an argument if they regard it correctly. And when that playing field is leveled and everyone finds themselves in that, that themselves in that same situation, what is that situation? It is a need to cry out for mercy. And when you realize that you need mercy, then you are going to be more willing to uh, display mercy to others. And so Jesus then leads, allows that to leave. Verse 3, uh, regard the law correctly, understand its proper use, to lead into this astounding command. He says that we need to be ready to forgive someone as much as seven times in a day. Now that doesn't mean that at the eighth time we all of a sudden say, well, I've already done seven. What he's saying is you need to be ready to forgive someone an unending amount of times. We react to this, we say, okay, hold on here. If someone in my life needs to ask for forgiveness seven times in one day, then that person probably needs to not be a part of my life. I don't know if I could ever stand that kind of push and pull with having to show mercy, having someone sin against me or offend me. Moreover, we say, well, at some point, doesn't this become a wisdom issue? That if someone needs to ask for forgiveness over and over and over again, wouldn't we say, well, they're just not being genuine in their repentance? But this passage is not concerned with all of those questions, which are legitimate questions, which are addressed elsewhere in Scripture. This passage is concerned, it is focused on the heart of the one who must forgive. Establishing a posture that we have towards others 
who would seek forgiveness from us. And what we see, this seems impossible and it seems absurd, but Jesus reminds us as we look at our last point this morning that the power to forgive is spiritual. In other words, it comes from the Holy Spirit. The power to forgive is spiritual. The apostles ask Jesus, they say, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith, which seems like a legitimate request. Uh, But Jesus says, it doesn't take a superhero kind of faith. It doesn't take a Herculean type of effort in faith in order to uh, regard this, this commandment and to do it well. Rather, Jesus says it's not about how great or how large your faith is, but rather what it is that your faith grasps. The power which faith introduces into your life. Jesus says a faith as tiny as a mustard seed has the ability to do the impossible and what seems absurd to our minds. Forgiving someone seven times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Impossible and absurd. And that's why Jesus says a faith as small as a mustard seed could do something like taking a mulberry tree and planting it in the middle of the sea. Jesus isn't saying that a faith as small as a mustard seed gives you some kind of magical powers, which some people think that this passage does. You have a a faith as small as a mustard seed, you can do these miraculous things. And then if you can't do that in your life, people then turn inward and they say, well, I must not have the kind of faith that Jesus prescribes here. It's not what he is talking about at all. A mulberry tree, this example of planting a mulberry tree in the middle of the sea, it is impossible. You can't do it. And not only that, it is absurd. There's no benefit to planting a mulberry tree in the middle of the sea. It does not do anything. Jesus is saying it's not about the size of your faith. It's rather the faith that what your faith grasps onto that makes you able to do the impossible and on the outside what seems Absurd. He's bringing us to the heart of the gospel. And as we uh, return to our confession of faith, Article 22, it says this. We do not mean that faith itself is what justifies us. For faith is the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. But Jesus Christ is our righteousness and crediting to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. In other words, all of the things that God commands us to do in light of redemption, it comes through the power of Christ which our faith brings into our lives. The quote-unquote secret, which I'm hesitant to use that word, but the secret to doing all of the commandments which we are commanded to do in light of the work of God finished for us in the gospel is to rest in Christ through faith. Not with a faith that is perfect, not with a faith that is of Herculean size or strength, but an imperfect faith can still grab on to a perfect Savior. A weak faith can still grasp onto a strong Christ. This is what Jesus is bringing us to. If you think of your spiritual life as a tree, 
and the branches and the leaves are all of the good works that we're commanded to do in Scripture. Now, if you were to water that tree, you're not going to stand around and and throw all of the water on the branches and on the leaves. That's not going to accomplish much. Rather, you need to be focused on the root of that tree. And is there health in the root of that tree that's going to bring forth the branches and the leaves? In other words, a life of God-glorifying living. And the root of that tree is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ and the power of Christ by the Spirit of God that is introduced into our lives because of it. So one Reformed preacher put it this way. He said, preach faith and preach all. Preach faith and preach all. By which he meant that in the calling of people to faith, there the Holy Spirit can free them from the, the, not only the guilt of sin, but remember the words of our catechism, the dominion and the power of sin in their lives as well. So the great Scott pastor, Robert Rollick, says this, When I bid a man to believe, I bid him to do all good things, for truth of belief will bring forth truth of holiness. If a man believes, works of sanctification will follow, for faith draws after it inherent righteousness and sanctification. Wherefore, if a man will go about this great work, to change his life, or to get any victory over sin, let him not go about it as a moral man. In other words, you want to change your life, you want to get victory over sin, you want to obey the commandments of the Bible, you want to forgive as Jesus commands us to forgive in this passage, do not go about it as a moral man. Don't look at the commandment and say, I need to do this, for that is what's right. Rather, he says, let him go about it as a Christian. That is, let him believe the promise of pardon in the blood of Christ And the very believing of the promise will be able to cleanse his heart from dead works. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so as we close, what is it that Jesus reminds us with this example of a servant who does his duty, does his work, and therefore does not deserve extraordinary praise for it? Is Jesus saying, your life as a Christian is just a thankless Job. No, he's bringing us once again to the reality of redemption. He's bringing us once again to what it means to live in the shadow of redemption. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul, who had probably a, a wonderful sanctified life that showed forth fruits in Christ and good works all over the place. And we probably would have been very impressed with the life that the Apostle Paul lived. But he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and not I, but the grace of God in me. See, it's inevitable that false gospels will come because the default mode of the human heart is to self-justify. And here's another problem, that when we start to live our life in Christ... And by the power of the Spirit, our lives become more and more sanctified. And after a number of years, trusting and abiding in Christ and availing ourselves of the means of grace and all of the transformation that comes forth from that, we can look at our life and we can say, I'm a lot more forgiving than I was 10 years ago. I'm a lot more patient than I was 20 25 years ago. And we can all of a sudden start to think that we deserve some praise for that. We deserve some kind of a recognition for that. And when that temptation comes, we need to, sit, to say with the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And not I, but the grace of God 
in me. And so to bring it to this command of forgiveness today, by the power of Christ and by the power of the Spirit of Christ given to us in faith, we stand ready to forgive a wrong done to us. We stand ready to forgive an enemy. We stand ready to do good to those who hate us. We stand ready to forgive seven times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, because no matter how much we do, no matter how much we forgive, we are still unworthy servants. Why? Because as we look at this passage, where do we really find ourselves? Jesus establishes us as the person to whom the the, the people always come over and over saying, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, where are we in this passage? We're the ones who come back to God seven days a week, seven times a day, 365 days a year perhaps dozens of times each day, in ways we don't even notice, in ways that we fail to realize we still fall short and sin and offend God's law. Now, don't misunderstand me, brothers and sisters. Sanctification and growing in holiness and growing in maturity, those are all very important things and essential to our life in Christ. But indwelling sin will be with us until the end of this life. We will still fall short and we experience victory over sin and all of a sudden there's this whole new area of sin to deal with and we're going to keep mining those depths each day that we are on this earth and we will come back to our God seven times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year and yet there stands our God ready to forgive us by the grace and the merits of Christ. There stands God who sees us at the edge of the property and he does not wait for us to come home. He runs to us. He throws his arms around us. He he covers us with a robe of righteousness. He places a ring on our finger. He says, this is my son. This is my daughter. A God who rejoices to forgive sinners. So along with Paul, we say that we are the foremost of sinners. Along with Paul, we would say that we would regard all of those things that would contribute to our standing before God that are from us. Regarded as rubbish, regarded as nothing, as garbage, and in all things to be found in Christ. And to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and not I, but the grace of God in me. And in doing so, we become a community of grace-filled, forgiving, unworthy servants. Who, when we are offended, don't look at the offense that has been caused, but rather we look to Christ And we look to the God whom we have offended times without number and the God who has welcomed us back home. No matter what we do, we will never equal the forgiveness that has already been shown to us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And not I, but the grace of God in me. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you stand as a God who is ready to forgive Father, when the temptation comes upon us to trust in our own merits, to return to the law, may we see, Father, that doing so would be disastrous, Father. So may we stay trusting in Christ always. And from that root of faith in Christ, may you bring forth all of the good works that you command of us. And Father, may we say always that we are what we are, by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Let's stand together.